Welcome to another episode of Our Interesting Times. It's my pleasure to have Dr. E. Michael Jones back on the show. Of course, Dr. Jones is the editor of Culture Wars magazine, author of many books, including the recently published Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. I have a copy of it right here. I'm about 100 pages into it, enjoying it. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine. Congratulations. <laughs> good book. It's a good read. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it, it's it's only 800 pages long. I so know. I was a little, a little disappointed. I was like, <laughs> I was I was going to call it a short history of a short history. <laughs> um, so uh, well, tonight I brought you on to talk about this piece uh, that you wrote, a couple articles reviewing um, this HBO series Hunters in Culture Wars for the April and May edition of Culture Wars magazine. But before we, before we get into that, I'd like to get your take on some some de- recent developments one this um i think all kind of related really because you have uh this um cardinal vagano uh in 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 the, in the vatican and back in rome uh issued a, an appeal uh a letter that he had signed along with a couple of cardinals regarding uh the church and the covid 19 crisis and the closing of churches worldwide uh and the uh and also the social distancing Catholic Church, <laughs> how it's responding, how it's reopening. So, um, Vaganer, did you get a chance to read that appeal that he wrote? Yeah, I signed it. Oh, okay, there you go. Okay, so uh, I thought it was spot on. I thought that's the position, the posture the church, the church should have taken going into this because it really, I think it hit all the major points of this thing. Would you agree? Yeah, I think it's a great, uh, a great sign. It's a sign that the church is finally awakening to the reality of social engineering, that it's the the church, there's a segment of the church that suddenly they feel that they don't have to accept the uh, conventional narrative at face value, that there may be another story going on here. Finally, uh, what has it taken? 50 years? Uh, uh, Not to say that uh, this is uncontested, but now there's a, a new voice in the church. Uh, who, who are the bishops listening to? I suspect that they're listening to the Jesuits rather than Cardinal Vigano. Uh, the uh, article in America magazine was a classic, absolute classic. Uh, I am a scientist. We must shut down masses. That was the headline uh, in America magazine. After that, uh, James Martin went on and said, if we don't, uh, if we open up the churches, uh, people are going to die. Well, Father, if you don't up, open up the churches, people are going to die because people die all the time. But uh, so th- the fact that uh, Vigano used the term social engineering, I read, I read it first in German, uh, and there it was, social engineering, in quotes, right there on the page. So this is a, a big, a, a significant milestone, I think. Yeah, I... Um... When that came out, I was really impressed uh, just with how it was written. Um, I, um, I I read on some on other shows, I actually read the actual text of it. And he actually talks about how this COVID-19 is a, an excuse for what he calls world government. And he, he I guess, he sort, I think he alludes to, or at least he implies about people profiteering off this, co- companies, pharmaceutical companies, but also goes out, takes a swipe at Bill Gates without mentioning his name. Yes. Actually, so guess what he was called because he did this. Take a wild guess, Tim. Anti-science? Anti-Semite. For Bill Gates? No, for talking about the, the coronavirus. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> there's a rabbi in Germany who called him an anti-Semite for ta- criticizing the lockdown. Uh, is this another instance of uh, the guilty flea where none pursueth? And I read this. Was there anything in there talking about Jewish interests? I, I don't remember that mentioned. I don't the, remember it. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember it at all. But uh, the rabbi accused him of being an anti-Semite. He was a rabbi from Germany. I forget his name. And then Vigano felt that he had to defend himself against this ridiculous charge. So there you have it. <laughs> so, yeah, the, uh, the, I, rec- I uh, commend it to anybody out there to read it. It's a great piece because, I mean, it, it, it's uh, uh, Cardinal Vigano is, uh, well, he, he, he suggests that, you know, there are conspiracies and, and there's, there's ulterior uh, motives and secret agendas afoot here that the, like you said, the church is waking up to covert warfare and psychological warfare, something they've been blind to, you know, for the most part in the past 50, 60 years, which is why they've, they've uh, at this point been losing the culture war. That's right. That's exactly the problem here. And now they're, they're going to lose people because they're more Catholic than the Pope when it comes to enforcing these government regulations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, you know, you don't you don't have to wear a mask when you go to the supermarket. The restaurants are open, uh, but you got to wear a mask when you go to church. And there we are, looking like, you know, one big uh, one big uh, orgy of virtue signaling. There as we're all <laughs> sitting there with our masks on in church, showing that we're good citizens, good good citizens. Well, it's very much like uh, some of the conditions or that the terms that they're setting. For uh, for lifting the lockdown or reemerging from our house arrest uh, to usher us into the new normal is one thing is they they're suggesting constant testing and they're implying uh, uh, forced uh, you know vaccinations but also contact tracing and these things which is just twenty four seven surveillance which is absurd because if you think about it it just simply isn't workable from a public health standpoint but it is very convenient from a from a totalitarian police state standpoint right right. But uh, if you look at um, uh, some of the descriptions, and not only the, the churches, but the schools, even businesses, is they simply won't be able to operate under these terms. So they're, they're, by accommodating the state in this, uh, in these measures, the church is cutting its own throat because they're destroying right. participation in the mass, the parish. Who wants to involve themselves in a parish if they got to go through these things? And people will just walk away from it. And same thing with the businesses that's, and the schools. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And they, the church has acquiesced uh, in designating itself a, a non-essential service, unlike abortion clinics, uh, gay discos, uh, and uh, uh, numerous other things. Mm-hmm. The church is a non-essential service, and it acquiesced in that. And this is this will make an impression on, on the people uh, in the pews. It, it will. Yeah, there was, a, I heard a talk, uh, John Rappaport, who's a reporter, does a lot of medical fraud, I think he's actually he's he himself is Jewish, a uh, non-practicing. But he he gave a talk last week talking about he challenged he gave an example. What if uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, in New York, Cardinal Dolan said that we are no longer abiding by any of these regulations, and I invite every Catholic in New York and in New Jersey to come to St. Patrick's Cathedral? And he said, what would happen if sixty thousand Catholics showed up? What what's the what are the police going to do? What are they going to do? Arrest everybody? And he, and he called upon uh, all those leaders in the, in, in the Catholic Church, but other churches as well, that, you know, you claim that this church is uh, how we relate to God, our closest relation to 
to the Almighty, the spiritual, the maker of every of everything. Yet you can, when it comes down to it, you're afraid to stand up to the state when the state prevents people from accessing or availing themselves, you know, the sacraments or the church. And he said, if you're afraid to do this, you should step down. Let someone else take the job. And right. I, I, I agree with him. Yeah. Well, leave it to a Jew to, to yeah. formulate the situation in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. But as you know, what is my favorite, my favorite thing to talk about is how God has not abandoned us. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the classic examples here, I think, of the cunning of reason is what happened in Ireland. Now, Ireland was just a f place for people full of fear. Mm -hmm. uh, they really went along. They really internalized this whole, the commands of their oppressors on this one. They were doing the lockdown. They were all taking it seriously. They were denouncing their neighbors for taking two walks a day instead of one walk a day. <laughs> it was just disgusting. So what happened? Well, George Floyd. And what happened after George Floyd uh, died in Minneapolis? The, the <laughs> Irish took to the streets. <laughs> Tens of thousands of Irishmen are breaking the lock, breaking the lockdown. Now, is this just an I excuse? Can imagine what what's what's what 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 are, what's going on now? Quarters in Dublin. Oh no, the Irish are back. What do we do? <laughs> this is this was not part of the plan. This was clearly not part of the plan. I think the plan was clear here, and it was basically, uh, look, there, there, nobody's paying attention anymore. I mean, some places uh, it looks like maybe it's fifty-fifty in mm -hmm. some places, but it looks as if the people have spoken and they ended the lockdown on their own. And so the people, like the governor of Michigan, look silly now. Uh, so we need another crisis. So we have this crisis now. Mm -hmm. Uh, to distract us from the fact that the lockdown failed and it wasn't necessary anyway. And it probably killed more people than it saved. Mm -hmm. But now we're not going to talk about that. Now we have something else to talk about. Oh, wait a minute. The Irish just left their lockdown. Wait a minute. What? What? We need another crisis for Ireland right now. What are we going to do? I, I think this is what this is what's going on. Now, uh, yeah, you had this uh, uh, this account of or this incident where this uh, man was died while being held down by a police officer in Minneapolis. And, of course, the um, Minneapolis is a very liberal city. The The mayor there, uh, Jacob Fry, um, is a, uh, a, a community organizer, a Jewish community organizer. Yes. Who, who on March 10th, uh, 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 I think, made March 10th, that was Abortion Provider Appreciation Day in Minneapolis. Ha! <laughs> Uh, but he was out there uh, when this occurred. He's out there stoking the fire because he was he was the one that said immediately made a racial incident out of it, but also talked about 400 years of slavery and oppression. So he's stirring up. So then once again, you have uh, the Black Jewish Alliance reemerging here, right, to stir trouble up, kind of that's to right, stir riot up here. That's right. That's right. After a hard, it fell on hard times. Remember in New Jersey. Because all that so-called white-black uh, uh, conflict turned out to be Jewish-black conflict. And we mm -hmm. don't like to talk about that. That's not really something, this pro a productive way of looking at this, this issue. But there's a bigger issue that's now starting to emerge in uh, Minneapolis. 
And that is, uh, where did that cop learn that knee hold? Uh, where did he learn that? <laughs> I heard talk about this. That technique well, is... Well, oh, this, this is really uh, uh, unfortunate, but uh, there uh, it looks as if there may be a link between the Jewish mayor and the cop kneeling on the guy's throat. Because what we're talking about here is the Israelization of police training that's going on throughout the United States. This is something we talked about in South Bend. We probably we probably talked about it on your show mm -hmm. years uh, must must be years ago, because our, our illustrious gay mayor Pete uh, brought in a mercenary from Tajikistan uh, who worked for this uh, Jewish operation that was involved in Israelization of police forces. So we're talking about police forces either being sent to Israel. Uh, where they learn these these uh, chokeholds uh, because they've tried them out on Palestinians over there, and then they bring them back. It's not they don't much so much bring the chokehold back; they bring the attitude that goes with the chokehold back, and which that's basically that we the cops are the Israelis, and you the people are Palestinians, and we're going to treat you like Palestinians. And so that's the real the story that's now starting to emerge here. Mm -hmm. So did these cops go to did they go did they go to Israel to learn this? Plenty of cops have the stories uh, or there the stories are all starting to emerge. If you type in Minneapolis police in Israel, you'll find all kinds of stories now about uh, the police being trained to treat uh, blacks this way. Well, I was instructed by the mayor, of, the Jewish mayor of Minneapolis, that it's about four hundred years of oppression by white people. So. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, you have this this militarization of the police force, which is you said is sort of an Israelization of the police force. This training programs, which I have read a lot about in the past five, seven years, affecting the how police the demeanor and, and the way that you know police police these areas. But um, another factor, an element here is also which you've written about in the past is, um, uh, of course, the uh, the problem of black criminality uh, and how. I think a while back you wrote an article about the Moynihan Report and how the Moynihan Report was sort of trying to take a moral, almost like a traditional Catholic approach to the Catholic social teaching approach to the problems then existing then in the black community, which was then a stunning 25% illegitimacy rate. Now it's close to 80%. But it was rejected because in order to uh, uh, embrace what Moynihan suggested, they would have had to uh, reverse the sexual revolution. And what we're seeing now in these communities is a decade, a consequence of decades and decades of sexual revolution and all the evils that come from that illegitimacy, family breakup or families not even forming at all. And you also gave a talk one time. It was titled How Drive-By Shootings. Uh, I'm sorry, how, Contracept how Contraception Leads to Drive-By Shootings. So can you provide some insight in this? Yeah, that was based that talk was based on the Moynihan report. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, we reached a kind of crossroads in America at around 1963 when Moynihan traced the problem of poverty. Black poverty is what we're talking about to illegitimacy. And at that time it was 21% illegitimacy rate among uh and so he decided that the cure to poverty was strengthening the black family, which is all classic Catholic social teaching. You know, uh, he was aware of that. He was a Catholic and so on and so forth. But he hit a brick wall when he got to Washington because the fix was already in. OK, they the oligarchs at that time, the elites, 
they knew how they were going to fix the problem of black poverty, and it was by eliminating black people. And the way they're going to do that is birth control. And this was the moment. At this point, birth control was still illegal, uh, certainly in the state of uh, Connecticut and probably across the country. Uh, uh, so uh, the government uh, was had to get involved in birth control in order to do this effectively. And uh, eventually, 65, uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, got passed by the Supreme Court, struck down all of the birth control laws, and now the government could get involved, and that's precisely what they did. So instead of doing what Moynihan said and providing, uh, let's say, twice a day mail delivery, and to do that, we're going to hire black men who are heads of families so they can provide for their families. Instead of going in that direction, they put birth control clinics into black churches. Uh, so uh, I, I list I, I talk about this in uh, t in two books uh, in John Cardinal Crowell and the Cultural Revolution. I named the churches in Philadelphia where that happened, and uh, also I believe where where uh, also uh, the other side of it would have been uh, slaughter of cities, urban renewal, and ethnic cleansing, which is a continuation of that story, and also in uh, libido dominandi. So I've mentioned it a number of different times. But so the net result was that uh, it was throwing gasoline on the fire. The 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 uh, irresponsibility in the black community that was largely the result of disruption, internal migration always leads to moral decline, uh, increased enormously. So from 21 percent to close, to, as you mentioned, close to 80 percent now illegitimacy among blacks. It was like throwing gasoline on the fire. Yeah, uh, I, when those riots were occurring, I thought of that article. Now, you wrote that article in Culture Wars. It was uh, in 1995, I think. Um, yeah, it was, it was early. I actually, uh, one of my fondest memories was giving that speech at Harvard University of all places, <laughs> where uh, this was the, the year my son graduated from Harvard. So it was 1992. And I gave, uh, the talk was... Uh, I think it was called uh, Spade Kicks, which is the quote I yes, got from it was. Yes, yeah. on, on the Road by Jack Kerouac, and uh, how the Negro became a paradigm of sexual liberation. And then I did, uh, a, I did the poster myself, and I had a picture of all these white guys at Small's Paradise ogling some high yaller dancing there with a the dance of the seven veils or something like that. Well, they, it, it was, it was like setting off an atomic bomb at Harvard. Uh, they were furious. Uh, uh, and this was uh, probably the last time you could ever say something like that at Harvard. This was, when I was there, you know, uh, they, I heard its phrase called political correctness. I'd never heard it before, but it was apparently, the uh, the mantra at Harvard at that time. So uh, I got um, everybody was outraged. So I got to give my talk. And uh, one of the uh, we I needed a bigger room and they had scheduled scheduled Norman Mailer to give a talk. <laughs> and I got Norman Mailer's room, uh, which was a big auditorium. And he got my broom closet. Uh, where he <laughs> talked about Something. Right? I don't know whatever he talked about. But I always felt a kind of satisfaction that I got. I took Norman Mailer's room away from him. That's kind of that's kind of funny because Norman Mailer, he was the one that came out with the concept of the white Negro, right? Where yeah, I quoted yeah. him yeah. in that. That was a, a seminal idea. Uh, it, it was called the Jew. It should have been called the Jewish Negro, but uh, it was called the white Negro. It had uh, had a, a lot of effect at that time. 
So we got about 400 uh, angry uh, Harvard professors and students showed up and 200 of them marched out in the middle of my talk. But it was all basically just it was all based on the Moynihan report. And mm -hmm. they one guy said at some point, he says, well, I've I've heard all these quotes before, but that's not what they mean. And I said, well, don't tell me what what they mean. I'm here to tell you what they mean, you know. Right. Um, anyway, so so I was uh, he graduated. My son graduated at the end of the year and were uh, uh, pick up the copy of the uh, Harvard Crimson, the year in review. And it turns out of the 50 uh, most significant events of that year, my talk was three of them. <laughs> well, that's good. So, so then I, so then uh, uh, they don't they don't hand out the degree in Harvard Yard. So uh, Adam had to go back to his do the dorm, and when they called out his name, everybody booed as he went up to get his degree. So then he kind of looked kind of sheepish after that. And I said, Adam, don't worry. If they had cheered, I'd be upset. <laughs> yes. at this place. Now, and so, so then I, just, just to finish this, yeah. I, there's this black woman. She, she's looking at me and I'm looking at her. And, and then she says to me, you're Mike Jones, aren't you? I said, yeah. She said, yeah, we went to Temple together. And then they said, yeah, you went to Sweden, didn't you? I said, no, I went to Germany. But you know, yeah, you got the idea. I did leave. And, and, uh, so then her daughter shows up. <laughs> this is funny. Her daughter is the head of the Black Students Association. <laughs> so it turns out I know your mama. <laughs> and the, her, the mother says to her, do you, uh, this is Dr. Jones. I went to Temple. We were at Temple uh, Graduate School together. Do you know him? And she, the daughter says, I know of him. And he, she walks away. <laughs> so she was like the classic uppity uh, Harvard student. Uh, and it wasn't good enough that I knew her mother. It just wasn't going to she there was nothing I could do to redeem myself in her eyes. Well, but you, that was then. Yeah. that was way back then. Well, you laid it out what the problem was in that article you write um, at the end. I don't have the article before me. I, I a while back, I did a show based on that article talking. I, it was a big part of the of our conversation talking about what was going on you know, with the topic of that time. Uh, but yeah, actually, the topic was the Moynihan report. Actually, that show. That's why. Uh, and I remember reading that article years ago, and I reordered a PDF copy of it. I no longer had the physical copy, but I knew there was some article that I'd read twenty years ago, twenty or so years ago, that covered this. Uh, but but it um, basically it says whatever reforms you propose, whatever problems you address, if you don't address you know the moral problems of of the individuals and how they're behaving, they're pointless anyway. Because if you're misbehaving sexually. You're causing all this disruption, all this disorder in 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 the society at the most basic level. You're not going to have a broader social order because you're, you're you have so much you're you're introdu introducing so much disorder in your own you know own life. Right. That, that society itself, which is an extension of us individuals, isn't going to have any order, and that's where the great society failed uh, to address that. In fact, in New York, actually they were actually against it because they didn't want to give up the, what they saw as the gains of the sexual revolution. This also suggested in that program is a very, uh, uh, you know, it's a, um, paternalistic, uh, not a, a, it's a patriarchal view in, in the best sense, meaning that you need fathers providing income, taking care of the family. So the mother can raise the kids and you have a family. And this went against the zeitgeist of the age, which is sexual liberation, feminism, these things where these institutions could be dissolved and weakened and you could still have a functional society. And we're learning well today. You can't, and we see that in the riots today. Cause I, I, 
I, I suggest if you uh, were able to canvas all the participants who are looting and burning up their neighbors, very few of them live in intact families, I would say. And I'd probably, you'd right. probably, yeah, you know. Yeah, well, it also goes back to the founding of uh, America and this uh, experiment in ordered liberty. Because John Adams said, we have uh, no constitution that functions in the absence of a moral people. Mm -hmm. And and uh, Pius XI in Quadragesimo Anno said, uh, there is no social progress outside the moral order. So th this is like the central tradition of the West, if you want to talk, talk about it that way. Uh, and if you don't have self-control, then you have to have external control. Well, guess what we're watching now? We're watching of one strategy after another of external control that's being imposed on people uh, who are becoming more and more unruly. And so we've, the COVID lockdown is now followed by martial law. Mm -hmm. Certainly in Minneapolis, I don't know where else uh, they have martial law, but they certainly have it there. Well, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I don't know if you're looking at what's going on in several cities. I suggest a lot of this is probably being fomented or created uh, by the usual suspects, you know, whether it's Black Lives Matter and Soros funded organizations. And we've had uh, recently George Soros has been very invo involved in funding local, you know, elections for district attorneys. Right. And, you know, in these district things. District attorney in Philadelphia is a Soros Soros puppet. Yes. Is the Jewish mayor of uh, Minneapolis a Soros puppet? Did he get Soros money? Is that why he's in charge there? Did that lead to the Israelization of the Minneapolis Police Department? These are all questions that need to be answered. Yeah, and you know, apparently there are protests in Hawaii, for in in, in Europe, and in Ireland over a, 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 a case in Minneapolis. That's a little suspect to me. And of course, the media is there to, to stoke the flames. And it's I find it funny that that the, uh, the 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 rioters are getting better press than a lot of the protesters were getting who were protesting, you know, the largely white protesters who were protesting peacefully the lockdowns. You know, we're, we're asked to understand their motivations, whereas the worst motivations were imparted to the uh, people who were protesting the lockdowns in Michigan and, in, you know, uh, in other states. Uh, yeah, that's you know. right. So Antifa has been named, Trump named Antifa as the outside agitators working in Minneapolis. And uh, Attorney General Barr is now reminding him that it's against the law to cross state lines to engage in violent demonstrations. Mm -hmm. So maybe there some good will come out of that. I think Trump has designated Antifa a terrorist organization. That was sort of waiting in the wings. Uh, but uh, what 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 happens to law enforcement? Why isn't why hasn't law enforcement been looking into Antifa? Why haven't they done anything? Where's, where's the FBI these days? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is uh, the ADL and the SPLC got in bed with the FBI and started pointing out the, the people that they wanted them to investigate, uh, and they weren't criminals. And so as a result of wasting their time with the SPLC, they finally broke their relationship with the SPLC. I mean, why they ever got involved in the first place is mysterious. For an intelligence organization and you didn't know about the SPLC, this is ridiculous. Same thing with the ADL. OK, so you listen to those people and then they tell you who the criminals are. And it turns out that the criminals turn out to be the people they don't like. They're not criminals. It's just that the ADL doesn't like them. The SPLC doesn't like them. And so that, again, lends this credence to this Israelization narrative. So you wasted all your time with people who were not criminals. 
Uh, and now you let this criminal organization just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And now it's calling the shots in places like Minneapolis. And finally, the Justice Department awakes to this fact. And now they got to do something. Yeah. And uh, I su- suspect if you gave uh, if you had a, a thorough investigation of Antifa, even Black Lives Matter, and you started doing a forensic analysis of the funding, you might run into funding from uh, Open Society or even the SPLC, and that that would be a criminal network, and you could go, you can use RICO against them and shut them down. But if SPLC is 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 uh, consulting with the FBI, <laughs> that's a conflict of interest. What they've been doing it until fairly recently. Yeah. Uh, so you're a lot of agitation, and once you you, know, you don't need. You know, I mean, you can have a few people stirring things up, but once law enforcement recedes and the force of of disorder are released. A lot of these people, all you need to do is just show that you can get away with a lot of mayhem and looting. They'll they'll do their part. They're like, you know, as the lumpen proletariat, like these black gangs in Minneapolis or Philadelphia. If you just give them the uh, the, the green light to to wreak havoc and steal and, and hurt people, they're going to do it for a couple of days. You know. Yeah. Well, that was the the, uh, uh, the war on poverty did that in Chicago. They gave uh, Sergeant Shriver gave almost a million dollars to the Blackstone Rangers. Uh, which was a gang. Uh, and in the church uh, committee hearings in the 70s, it turns out that they knew they were engaged in criminal activity and gave them the money anyway. Well, that means you're subsidizing criminal activity, aren't you? Mm-hmm. So once again, we got these proxy warriors, you know. So it's a green, revo- it's a colored revolution type thing where you have uh, proxy warriors. Uh, this is like Gene Sharp and this model that we see play out like in Libya or in Syria or in the Middle East, where it looks like it's spontaneous, they have some pretext, or they have some incident, you know, like uh, uh, a George Floyd incident, where he, he's, he's, he dies at the hands of a cop. Or you have an incident like in um, in Tunisia, where someone lights himself on fire, and this sparks the re- revolution. Then you have this color revolution thing, where you have social media being used, and this is all an intelligence operation, undermine the government. And you, you, you could make the case that what we're seeing here is something going on here in the United States, where you have the deep state trying to create mayhem throughout the summer for whatever reason. No, this is just after the whole COVID-19 hoax or operation. Right. Now, now all of a sudden you have all these protests, all these riots to distract attention away from what they're still doing to the economy with, with, with the lockdown. Right. Right. Never let a crisis go to waste. Mm-hmm. So like with the COVID, uh, I just, I had an interesting conversation with a lady here uh, who's a nurse uh, at a school here. And she said she thinks the coronavirus swept through that school uh, in October. Mm-hmm. She got really sick. And, and to, she described her symptoms. It sounded like COVID virus to me. Well, that was October. Well, nobody was talking about it then. So when did it become news? Well, it became news <laughs> when the stock market crashed. Mm-hmm. Now that you don't have to be a conspiracy nut to see that there's some type of uh, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? It 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 doesn't have to be pure coincidence. It's it the the issue is not when did it happen. The issue is when did it become news? When did it block out something else? And I think the same thing applies now with the eclipse of COVID uh, in our minds. It's being look this that news cycle went way too long. People were getting sick. Now we have a new news cycle. Now it's going to be the black, back to Black Lives Matter, the old Ferguson thing resurrected again. Because that's a a tried and true way to get people scared or riled up, depending on who you're talking to. This piece you wrote 
uh, Nazi hunters and their Catholic proxy warriors. You reviewed this HBO series, a series which I did not see, but I've seen clips, on, you know, various clips on it. I've read a lot about it. Uh, this Nazi hunters, where it's a story about, I guess, uh, sort of a, like a Wiesenthal type group where they they're going, they hunt Nazis down in America in the 1970s, and I guess uh, assassinate them because no one else is doing anything about it. Yes, yes, it's it's a pure. Uh, Jewish paranoid fantasy that grew out of the great internet battle of uh, 2019. Now, the, the COVID is the extension of the internet battle. It's obvious now. The uh, Harvard, two Harvard professors wrote an article in The Atlantic said exactly that. Other people have said it. Basically, the Harvard professors said that the battle in 2019 was over unwanted content. The oligarchs were not happy. They didn't say unwanted unwanted by whom but it's clear it's unwanted by them so this grew up out of that paranoid uh, uh atmosphere where uh, uh last year where everybody was t talking about hate crime okay so, uh, so, so there was a wave of paranoid jewish fantasy that mm -hmm. uh after last year uh, which basically was the the year of the battle over the internet uh, hate speech, all that other type of stuff, when the ADL basically tried to shut down everyone and tried to become the commissar of who was allowed to speak and who was not allowed to speak. So in order to keep the, the money flowing into the ADL, they have to generate fear. And these programs are there to generate fear. It wasn't just, uh, the, the, it started off, I, I think a year before, the man from High Castle. Uh, uh, then it was... Uh, Nazi hunters, and then after that, it was uh, the plot against America, which is uh, based on a Philip Roth novel. All of them have the 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 premise is that basically the country that is the most philo-Semitic country in human history is just teeming with Nazis who are ready to take over and and uh, exterminate Jews. That's the premise of all of these all of these fantasies. Yeah, the um, you know, I think you make a uh, how it's sort of a mixture between Munich and also Inglorious Bastards. This uh, <laughs> this Hunters series where it's almost absurdist in its own way, but it, um, but it glorifies in violence uh, and also justifies again uh, a breakdown of rule of law, uh, due process, uh, and it also um, it, I guess has this fictional character played by Al Pacino. Who's, yeah, who thinks that revenge and murder is actually it's it's almost holy. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. it's a mitzvah. Mm -hmm. It's a duty. Uh, so, yeah, it, this is exactly what's going on here. And so they're promoting uh, uh, vigilantism. They're promoting revenge. They're promoting the uh, abolition of the rule of law and just uh, mayhem. So if a Jew feels threatened, he can kill you. It's that simple. And it had it, so it was so over the top that even the Jews got upset. So uh, I, I forget who it was, but a number of Jewish organizations simply said to please don't do this again. <laughs> Cancel the series. It was so embarrassing. But but the, the roots of it were in in Munich, the Spielberg film, which was a respectable film. Uh, compared to this series, but uh, that was about the uh, massacres at the uh, Munich Olympics, 1972, and then this group of uh, Israeli hitmen, the Mossad, are sent out to fan out all over Europe and kill people they think are responsible. 
Well, usually you have a trial before you are allowed to uh, punish some with a cap for a capital crime. And the trial in this instance was uh, basically Israelis showing up. There's a Palestinian walking across, along the street in Rome. They gather him and they, their hands are shaking and they say, are you so-and-so? And he goes, blah, blah, blah. And then they shoot him. And it gets worse after that. Well, this is even beyond that because the crudity got uh, increased with inglorious bastards, which, by the way, uh, Gilad Asma thought was an intentionally anti-Semitic movie. It was portrayed to make Jews look bad. That's what Gilad Osman said. Uh, the, the Nazis were invariably polite and civilized and the Jews were complete uh, bloodthirsty <laughs> barbarians. Uh, but and so this was a kind of the marriage of both of them. And it was horrendous. I mean, it was I couldn't believe I'm watching this. I couldn't believe I'm watching this. So uh, they had this chess game and it's human figures. And if the chess you lose the chess game or something like that or the beast doesn't move right, you shoot the person. So you shoot the Jew who is the human chess piece. Well, this was so over the top that the Jewish I think the Holocaust uh, Yad, Yad Vashem or one of these things protested and saying this cheapens the memory of all the people who died in concentration camps. Well, that's true. It is. But it's only the logical extension of this Holocaust industry that we've been subject to for now uh, 50 years, 55 years now, beginning the, the whole uh, genre of Holocaust porn began with the pawnbroker, which broke the production code in 1965. Schindler's List is an example of this, uh, Munich, or so on up to the present. Yeah, so the, yeah, pretty soon, I, I think you uh, allude to it, or you referenced it in the article, that pretty soon we'll be hearing stories of human chess matches, uh, with humans being used as chess pieces by the Nazis. The same way we heard stories about lampshades and bars of soap, you know. Yeah, well, they, they, they're undermining their own narrative. Yeah. So is it Holocaust denial now to say that there were no human chess games? <laughs> Let's yes. get, get Debbie Lipstadt on your next show. You can ask <laughs> her these questions. She's the official Holocaust denial lady. Uh, but you in the article, you talk about, uh, again, so it sets the, the the tone or the idea that the it, 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 these israeli agents or jewish agents rather have the right to uh play judge jury executioner and uh they're saying that's okay cuz they're killing nazis so you don't have any sympathy for the victims like i think one lady was a, a lady german scientist for nasa and they rig up a shower or something yeah <laughs> you know yeah. um so the the, the, the you know, sort of, you know, cute tricks like that, I guess. Um, but um, the, the idea that uh, if they call you a Nazi, then you don't deserve due process and you can be uh, sum summarily executed uh, because they're Nazis. And, um, and, and I think the character Al Pacino talks about how the, the greatest Jew power the Jews have is, is their memory. They never forget anything. And from that, they're also their, uh, their uh, I guess, their uh, uh, appetite or the desire for revenge. And this is yeah. powerful because... Everywhere throughout history, they've been persecuted, uh, you know, without any cause. There's never any context to this. That everyone is just insane anti anti Semites. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, how do you know that the person's a Nazi? Well, you just know. 
You just know. And there's no such thing as a case of mistaken identity here. So it's set in 1977, which was, uh, what's that, 32 years after World War II. Mm -hmm. So the woman who starts screaming, this guy's a Nazi, she looks as if she's about 30 years old, which means she was minus two years old when the war <laughs> ended. Uh, so that's not very plausible. Uh, but the, the, so that was 77. Well, there's a lot of water over the dam since then. We're now up to 2020. Uh, you know what? I know this comes as a shock to you, but most Nazis are dead now. Uh, I know you're surprised to hear this. But so what does this mean? Well, what happened last year that, that now it's OK. They established the film. It's OK to kill someone if he's a Nazi. Well, there are no Nazis left. Well, who are the successors to the Nazis? Well, they're anti-Semites. So is it okay to kill an anti-Semite? Well, well yeah. that's the logical extension of this movie. So they're advocating violence. <laughs> this is, you know, they accuse me of advocating violence. I never advocate violence. They are advocating violence. This is hate speech. This is everything that they accuse their, their enemies of during the past year. It's all in this film, all in this film. And if you if they call you an anti-Semite, they are justified in killing you. It's obvious. And, and this type of thing does happen. Uh, I mean, the SPLC published their hate list. Somebody picked up a gun and gunned down people at the Family Research Institute. So it's not as if it doesn't happen because uh, hate is a Jewish virtue. Remember, that was in First Things. Rabbi Meyer Solvichik said that. So they're allowed to hate you. And because they are allowed to hate you, they're allowed to harm you. This is, this is the message of this movie. And we're supposed to cheer. And what you say, in the, if they're not engaged in, in, in actual, literal assassination, they engage in, in character assassination and destroy people's careers uh, of people who either they don't like or see people who criticize Jewish organizations or Jewish causes or whatever, Jewish states or, uh, but also they, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say, uh, that they can target you and ruin your life. And that's, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So, and, uh, any, if, if they call you an anti-Semite, then your career is over and that's perfectly justified because, uh, because they can do it. Well, you, uh, you point out Professor David O'Connell, who actually used the research, I guess, in criticism of, was it Simon Wiesenthal? No, Ailey Wiesel. Ailey Wiesel. And then he was accused of, uh, what, appropriation uh, of Jewish he was, research? He was, he was, he was, he was first of all, th this is how it works. There, my, my most faithful readers are at the ADL. They get two copies every month of <laughs> Culture Wars magazine. I never have to send them a second subscription renewal notice. They're always very prompt in renewing their subscription. So they read the magazine. As soon as they see an affiliation, they immediately go and attack the person through the institution. In this instance, it was, uh, uh, where was it? It was in Georgia, the University of Georgia, I believe. Uh, and the lady who did it was uh, Deborah Lipstadt. She sicked some other lady on uh, Dave O'Connell. He had to defend himself. Uh, he was exonerated, but uh, they put him through uh, the, 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 the ringer. Yeah, the message uh, was sent, yeah. Because he proved every, everything he said was true. 
And so he was ex eventually vindicated, but it caught, took its toll on the guy. And it's a warning to anyone who has any type of affiliation. We will go after you and we don't care whether you're telling the truth or not. So they came up with some absolutely crazy uh, delict. Like he it, was it misappropriated? Criticism? Yeah, in other yeah. words, he was he was uh, he misappropriating the research of Naomi Seedman. This is ridiculous. Yeah. You, so you're quoting her. That's misappropriation. Isn't she supposed to be quoted? Doesn't every scholar write so that he is quoted? This, this is ridiculous. This is the type of thing that they have to stoop to because they're trying to uh, punish you for telling the truth. It's that simple. Now, uh, so they, they, they've established a pattern and, they, and also they have the power, uh, apparently, to ruin people's lives by just calling them anti-Semites. Of course, they don't really identify what constitutes anti-Semitic belief, but... Uh, Based on what their description of it is, it, the Catholic Church and its teachings, at least its traditional teachings, are considered anti-Semitic. And in the second piece, you talk about how there's some, uh, I guess, uh, Jewish proxies uh, in, within the Catholic Church who do their dirty work for them by sort of, uh, I guess, embracing this idea of anti, this broad concept of anti-Semitism, where someone like a figure like you, who, who um, uh, where you, you'll be criticized anti-Semitic, and they look to condemn you for it, and they and they'll have people within the church do their work for them. Yeah, now this is, I call it a neo-converso crisis, mm -hmm. uh, referring to what happened in Spain. The the Catholic conversion campaign was so successful, thousands, uh, basically every everyone converted to Catholicism, uh, but some of the conversions were insincere, and they continued acting uh, according to Jewish principles even after they had accepted baptism well we're seeing the same thing now with certain people um uh re remind me uh, rachel bratton weiss dawn goldstein to, to name just two people these are people of jewish background who convert to catholicism and the water of baptism is hardly dry on their foreheads and they're attacking fellow catholics as anti-semites adopting the whole ADL, Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, uh, criteria of what anti-Semitism is without any type of reflection on the Catholic tradition and the fact that uh, the Gospels uh, would cons are, are, are anti-Semitic according to these principles. No sense whatsoever. You can't talk to these people. You try to talk to Dawn Goldstein, she bans you from Twitter. The same thing across the board. So it's, a, it's very demoralizing. Very demoralizing. So she's converted to Catholicism, but she's kept the bad habits. Sort of. Well, isn't doesn't conversion mean you're supposed to change? <laughs> if there's one bad bad habit that is really repugnant in this society, it's this use of anti-Semitism. The term anti-Semitism as a form of character assassination. This is lack of charity, and it's especially uh, painful when it's coming from a fellow Catholic. You get the sense that uh, I don't get the sense that we're part of the same Catholic Church. The way she denounces people like me as anti-Semites, it's just it's just appalling. There's no other word for it. It's appalling. Yeah, there's a, yeah, in the article you cite uh, uh, Bishop Rhodes, and he's uh, at Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he appears to be pandering <laughs> to uh, to 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 the Jews. Uh, He's celebrating the arrival of violins that were played by Jewish prisoners at the concentration camp. Okay, 
and he's, uh, I guess he's lamenting that there's been an uptick in anti-Semitism uh, activity or rhetoric in recent years. And so, and he's condemned, but again, he doesn't define anti-Semitism. And what he, what he includes anti-Semitism is criticism, which is unfair, of course. Um, uh, but then here we have a, a Catholic, a bishop of the Catholic Church, you know, spending a lot of time talking about supposedly anti-Semitism, rising anti-Semitism, but he's not critical of Jewish activism or participation in 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 America's cultural and moral decline. Where they do, I mean, Jews do celebrate their uh, their role in promoting abortion, gay rights, right. pornography, right. their role in pornography. Uh, so, if indeed they are involved in these things, and Jewish organizations do celebrate these things as liberties as rights as progress uh then these jewish organizations are are should be a target for criticism from the bishop but they're not now why and, is and that so it's, yeah. so uh, well there's two word answer to that is nostra tate mm -hmm. and he goes into great detail talking about nostra tate and uh in a way that uh, uh does not make sense as i try to point out in 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 the article but I mean, let's let's get back to the to the link here between part one and part two. It's violins from Auschwitz. Do you remember that the, it's in uh, Nazi hunters? Uh, the the guys are they have their striped suits on and they're playing their violins. And uh, the German uh, uh, sadistic uh, guard is humming along and suddenly says, "This is Jewish music," and he shoots the guy. This is preposterous. This never happened. And, and the, the, the Jews uh, are upset that they portrayed it that way because, in some sense, it, it does cheapen the fact, uh, the suffering of the people who were there. Uh, but there was there was an orchestra at Auschwitz. It wasn't like the it wasn't the way they portrayed it in the movie. There was an orchestra there. And apparently it was to keep them occupied during the time when they weren't working there. That undermines uh, the narrative as mm -hmm. it exists today. Okay, so instead of uh, so here we have now the bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend uh, doing a service with a lady rabbi, okay, a lesbian lady rabbi, uh, and who's telling us that these violins are from Auschwitz and using a Catholic church to convey this message to us. Now, I'm, I'm getting confused here. Now, what exactly is the role of the bishop here? The bishop uh, speaks with authority when he talks about faith or morals. Well, what about when he talks about violence from Auschwitz? Is that something that I have to accept as a Catholic? Do I have to believe that those violins really came from Auschwitz? Do I? So, Do I have to believe yeah. what I saw in Nazi hunters? Uh, when the Jews don't believe it, what do I have to believe? Uh, and so the, 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 basically the crux of my questioning here is, of course, the bishop has the right to speak on faith and morals. But what we're talking about here is neither faith nor morals. It's neither one. We're talking about human regulations here. And the bishop is imposing human regulations as if they are the word of God here. Well, I mean, I guess these violins are are they're, they're, they've become sort of a relic, right? These are relics now of a of a of holly of the religion of the Holocaust. 
and being invited into the Catholic Church. And of all the problems confronting American society today, um, family dissolution, poverty, economic problems, all the you know, the moral issues, the degeneracy that you know, the breakdown of moral order, these things, and the bishop is 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 uh, using his 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 authority, his position to lecture people about anti-Semitism. At the same time, the problem is that a lot of the problems that confronting the country, the moral problems, the economic problems, necessarily involves going after and criticizing identifiable Jewish organizations. Correct? Yeah, I mean, what what we've been through this before, mm -hmm. but. Uh... A A A Amy Dean said that Jews are behind gay marriage. Well, this I know the bishop does not agree with gay marriage. So is it is it anti-Semitism to say what Amy Dean said about herself? How is this possible? This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Are we dealing with are we dealing with a problem here with gay marriage? If we are, can we talk about the people who are responsible for it? Or do we have to censor ourselves? and pretend that we don't know what Amy Dean said in Tikkun magazine. This is preposterous. This has nothing to do with faith or morals. This is sticking your head in the sand and then, and then berating people as if they're not good Catholics because they bring up the fact that Jews are engaged in moral subversion. Well, I'm sorry, but that's, you're, you're, you're not uh, exercising any charism or uh, or any type of uh, authority of the Catholic Church when you say this. You're cheapening that authority by talking about things that are just uh, tenets of human respect. I know, I've, I, mean, I know that polite people do not say things like this, but what's, uh, you're talking about uh, manners here, not morals. Mm -hmm. if it's, I, I don't need the church to, to, to tell me which, which fork to use when I'm invited to a, a, a state dinner. That's not the role of the church. And if the role, and if the church assumes this, the church is cheapening its authority. It's undermining its own authority by doing exactly what Jesus Christ told the Pharisees not to do, okay? Don't impose human regulations as if they are the word of God. Don't do that. You have no right to do that. Um. And it's interesting you point out in the article that uh, this outreach or this dialogue, or that I would say pandering to Jewish organizations since Nostra Aetate, the position, the ironic position that the church has taken since the 1960s, hasn't earned them any favor or earned them any credit with, with the Jews themselves because you point out when Bishop Rhodes wrote an appeal to get an exemption from Obamacare, which I think put it a requirement on Catholic institutions to support contraception and in many cases possibly even abortion, the Jewish organizations were silent, correct? Right. So it's worthless. The dialogue has led to nothing but the erosion of uh, the Catholic position, uh, of, of the Catholic faith. That's all it led to. And so it's a, a failed experiment, and it's time to just terminate this failed experiment. Okay? There's nothing wrong uh, with Nostra Aetate. I know I get in trouble when I say that. I say this to my friends. I say, uh, all you have to do is interpret Nostra Aetate in light of tradition and all of the ambiguities disappear. Uh, but we have a situation now in the church where 
uh, you interpret tradition in light of Nostratate, and that's going to cause problems, and it has caused problems to this day. And uh, the um, now this position the church has taken uh, in recent decades, where it does does not have to evangelize or proselytize the faith to the Jews. There's no special mission to convert the Jews. Although the church began by converting the Jews, there was. Uh, uh, it was criticism of the Jews, uh, their chastisement, which led to their conversion and ultimately their 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 you know their, their redemption and saving. And so, if if the church had taken, you know, if uh, Saint Peter had taken that position or Saint Paul had taken that position from the get go, the church never would have gotten started. So, criticism is necessary. It's you know, it's one of the uh, uh, apps, you know acts of corporate uh, of corp, you know, corporal mercy. Where you you know instruct the ignorant to correct the ignorant. spiritual work of mercy. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, work. sorry. It's a spiritual work of mercy where you uh, instruct the ignorant, you know, correct them if you will. And so you, I mean, you have to admonish the sinner. Admonish the sinner, but yet we're supposed to the you know the position of of so many of today's uh, you know uh, clerics is don't say anything, just be nice. Well, both you know, they're two, basically they're they're suggesting that there are two uh, two uh, paths to, to salvation here, which undermines the church. Why be a bit, why bother being a Catholic if there are multiple roads to heaven? Right? I mean, it's that's right. Yeah. It completely undermines the whole role of the Catholic Church, because it, all of this dialogue led to the fact of uh, dual covenant theology. That's mm-hmm. it led right there. The Keeler statement, which which I cited there, basically said. Uh, you know, there are two ways to, to salvation. Uh, Catholics um, can attain salvation by accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior, and Jews can attain salvation by rejecting Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's very simple. That's where it led, and it was so bad, the Keeler statement was so bad, that the Catholic bishops couldn't issue it as their statement. It just got dropped down the memory hole. That's where it led. We have to be honest about this. And actually, there was a, an evaluation of 50 years of Catholic-Jewish dialogue in the, at the Vatican, and they said it, it, it was a disaster, but we're going to continue. Well, why are you going to continue if it led to the disaster that you've just described? Yeah, why persist in it if it's, it's, this, is, this is what we have? I mean, This I, is the crisis in the Catholic Church right now. You're persisting in... Uh, a, a heretical repudiation of the gospel, the commission to go and baptize all nations. That didn't exempt the Jews. The Jews were the first converts. As you yourself pointed out, the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles is Peter going to Jerusalem after Pentecost and telling, going, confronting the Jews. The first thing he says to the Jews is, you killed Christ. And then it says the Jews were cut to the heart. And then the Jews said to Peter, what must we do to be saved? And he said, you must be baptized. And that day, 5,000 men were baptized. That's it. That's it. Okay, that's it. If the Pope goes to Jerusalem, that's what he's got to say. If he says anything else, he's not preaching the gospel. He's preaching some something, some uh, uh, human regulations, the wisdom of the world, and he's not preaching the gospel. If you don't, Tell the Jews that they killed Christ. Why should they feel cut to the heart? Yeah, you're confusing diplomacy with theology, or and when you do that, you start to uh, eat towards ecumenism, which is a heresy. You know, just to be nice, you're not going to say what you need to say. But then, 
what's the point of going there in the role of the Bishop of Rome if you're not going to do that, you know? Yeah. That's the pat the pattern has already been set by St. Peter, who was the first bishop, the first pope. Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing that, you're not preaching the gospel. I'm sorry. You're preaching something else. It's not the gospel. Well, I get, I think what we're seeing, witnessing now in, in the current position of the church today, is particularly during this COVID thing where they completely collapsed, is uh, that the, there's a lot of compromise, uh, a lot of compromised members of the hierarchy who don't have the courage or don't feel they have the, the strength to oppose uh, the state and the forces behind the state, the interest behind the state. You know, it's just why, you know, today, you know, the bishops are, again, the bishops are actually are, are, are uh, slower than Donald Trump. Donald Trump's more Catholic than the bishops and <laughs> trying to get the churches open. You know, it's, it's the church astonishing. is going to have to be to distinguish between the gospel and human respect. And when it comes to the Jews, they are they can't they can't make that distinction. And they're preaching human respect and manners and uh, 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 the, the, the etiquette of polite people who don't say things that uh, offend other polite people. It's not the gospel, though. Gospel yeah. is always going to cause offense. Sorry, that's just. Jesus said that. Yes, yeah, you're going to ruffle a lot of feathers. <laughs> you know, that's right. you know that's just the way that's that's the way of the cross, though. I mean, that's so. You have to ask yourself, you know, what are you good for if you're not doing that? Especially if you're, you know, if you're if you if you wear the collar. You know, we're all called to do that. You know, we're all called to do that, but especially if you wear the collar. And, you know, that's why you have you're given a position of, of authority over the over people and. They're not uh, the bishops are there to protect their flock, and if they're not doing that, you know. And also, if they're naive, it's it's, it's tough to have a, a a shepherd who doesn't know there are wolves out, wolves out there, you know, or pretends that there aren't, or yeah. pretends that the traditional enemies of the Catholic Church have suddenly become our friends. Uh, that's naive. Yeah, and what has this sixty years of dialogue done? Yeah, nothing. Yeah. It eroded the Catholic faith and, and uh, uh, led to uh, the church giving up its defense of the moral order. Yeah, and you have that quote. I mean, a ex good example of a lay Catholic who understood who, the, who his enemies were was Joe Breen. He wasn't a, a priest, but he, he was uh, kind of holding uh, the pass against uh, sort of the, the church's cultural enemies back in the 30s you know, and the 40s with the Hollywood production code. But he, he understood the Jews, and for that he kind of earned, begrudgingly earned their respect. He did earn their respect. Yeah. There's six, I think five of the six pallbearers were Jews yeah, when so, he died. So was he anti-Semitic? <laughs> is it anti-Semitic to criticize Jews? Yeah, there's that famous quote about Hollywood. <laughs> that, <laughs> but he, he, he understood it. That's, 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 that was that sort of that um, common wisdom or understanding uh, that many Catholics had uh, before World War II, mind you, about... Uh, the problems with the Jews, that there indeed was a Jewish question. And we've talked about Civita Catholica, about, you know, the Jewish question and, and that article, the series articles of the 1890s. And that was the posture that the church once had, and it needs to regain it if it's going to, uh, you know, turn the tide in the culture and ultimately prevail. And hopefully yeah. it will. So we have we have a, a radical discontinuity right now in the Catholic Church on this issue. Mm -hmm. So either the contemporary uh, interpretation is right, in which case the entire tradition of the Catholic Church 
before 1965 is not only wrong, it's heinous anti-Semitism, which led to the Holocaust and the extermination of all of these Jews. Mm-hmm. One or the other. You can't have it both ways. So is if that's the case, then what about St. John Chrysostom's adversus Judeos? Why is he a saint if he was uh, basically uh, responsible for the Holocaust? Mm-hmm. How is that? Po- you can't bring these two things together. It's one or the other. And I'm saying the time we've had enough time to test this experiment. The experiment failed. The experiment of dialogue with Jews has failed. It led nowhere. As you pointed out, when Bishop Rhodes and the bishop, the other bishops asked for common religious support for uh, conscious exemptions, the Jews laughed at them. No, we're not going to do that. They, add, they demanded that the Obama administration enforce the letter of the law and make the little sisters of the poor pay for contraceptives. That's what they did unanimously. There wasn't a Jewish organization that broke ranks on that. So where has this led? Nowhere. Nowhere. It's time to end this failed experiment. Yeah, and I do say psychologically, if a bishop is holding, uh, uh, I guess, events in the church, that's what they are really because there's no – appropriate place to bring in a rabbi to, and treat violins as a relic to uh, to the religion of the Holocaust. Again, again yeah. let's go back to that. If, I have read Ad Versus Judeos. Mm-hmm. And the, the main point of that was uh, basically uh, Catholics were going to synagogues to hear music. <laughs> and he was saying yeah. this was having a terrible effect on the Catholic mind at that time. And the, the effect was basically uh, that the, the Catholics had lost their ability to make the distinctions they needed to make about the Trinity. I just did, a, I, I'm going to bring out a, a second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit with about a couple hundred pages of additional material, but I added a chapter on the Aryan crisis. And this is precisely what Cardinal Newman said about Antioch during this period of time when Chrysostom was complaining. This was the period of time when the whole idea of the Trinity was hammered out, and the Jews at this point were involved, sided with the Arians, and were attacking the Catholics. I mean, literally attacking the Catholics, you know, attacking their churches, killing people. Uh, it was a horrendous time. Uh, but Chrysostom was saying, uh, and Newman, uh, echoing Chrysostom, was saying, they they had become this this attending these Jewish musical events in synagogues had a stultifying effect on the faith. They couldn't comprehend the Trinity anymore. They should think about that. Did, did Bishop Rhodes have that in mind when he invited this Jew this lady rabbi uh, to to bring in the violins from Auschwitz? What's going on here? Christendom is rolling over in his grave. At least back in his time, the Catholics had to go to a synagogue. Now they're bringing the synagogue into the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, anything? Uh, I think it's about we're about an hour now. Do you have anything else to say, or just uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, Tim? Well, thank you for coming back on the show. That's the articles are Nazi hunters and their Catholic proxy warriors. This it's is... in Culture Wars magazine. Yeah. You can subscribe by going to culturewars.com. You can also buy Logos Rising. It's not available on Amazon, only available at culturewars.com. Yes, and get it delivered to you. 
arrive in, in a week or so. Uh, again, I'm 100 pages into it, and it's a good read. Um, so uh, to the extent that I've read it, I do recommend it. So Good. Thank you. Uh, I'll let you go. Thank you so much. That's uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, editor of Culture Wars Magazine. Uh, I'll be posting this soon. When I do, I will we'll, uh, send you the link. Great. Thank you. Good night, then. Thank you so much, then. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye-bye. Did they tear it out with talons of steel And give you a shot so that you wouldn't feel And washed it away as if it wasn't real It's just a mistake I won't have to face Don't give it a name, don't give it a place Don't give it a chance it's lucky in a way It must have felt strange To find me inside you I had unintended to stay Did you want to keep it right? Put it to sleep at night Squeeze it until it could say You can't be too strong You can't be too strong can't be too strong Can't be too strong You decide what's wrong Well, I ain't gonna cry I'm gonna rejoice Shout myself dry and go see the boys They'll laugh when I say I left it overseas Yeah, babe, I know it gets dark Down by Luna Park But everybody else is squeezing out a spark That happened in the heat Somewhere in the dark the doctor gets nervous completing the service He's our rubber gloves and no head Yes, he fumbles the light switch It's just another minor hitch Wishes to God he was dead But you can't be too strong You can't be too strong You can't be too strong too strong You decide what's wrong Can be too hard Too tough